You know, mission and vision statements are all the rage for corporations or businesses, even individuals and churches. And for a few thousand dollars, you can have a church consultant come in, interview your people, meet with your leadership, and craft a nifty statement just for you. The funny thing is, while the mission statements may be craftily and uniquely worded, in the end, they say, or at least they should say, basically the same thing. You see, Jesus gave the church its mission. In all the Gospels, at the beginning of the book of Acts, we read over and over, our job is to take the good news of the Gospel to people around the globe. We are to make disciples of all nations, make followers of Jesus with us. If the mission of the church, and therefore every follower of Christ is to make disciples of Jesus, then I'd, I would suggest that everything that we do should somehow be motiva- motivated by the gospel and its proclamation. Yes, of, of course, everything we do should bring glory to God, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do for the glory of God, yes. But one of the ways we give him glory is to be obedient to the mission and bring him more followers, to gather more worshipers around his throne. To be clear, that is the mission. And so everything we do should be motivated by the gospel, making it both available and attractive to people. Both of those words are important, available and attractive. Available means people should have the opportunity to hear the gospel. That is, after all, what Jesus commanded, take the, good, take the good news to the end of the earth. After all, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of or about, about Christ. That is what missions is all about, taking the gospel to people who have not heard, see them trust Christ, plant churches, which in turn make disciples. I'm sure at some point you've made the connection, the word missionary or missions comes from the word mission. So again, we make the gospel available by sharing it with people. But it is not just a global mandate. It's not just global missions. Dropping a few dollars in the offering plate designated to missions as vital, as absolutely indispensable as that is. We also are to be people of the mission. So we too should share the news with those around us. We actually saw that last week, did we not? Having come to the living stone, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, we have become living stones that God is using to to build into a spiritual house. Further, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood to represent God to the people, a holy nation set apart for God and his purposes. We are God's people for his special possession, but for what purpose? So that... We may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of the darkness of sin and and, and death into his marvelous light, the glory of the gospel of his son. We are supposed to be the ones declaring God's mighty acts of power. Remember, that's what excellencies means. God's mighty acts of power through the work of his son. We're supposed to be. 
I suppose then we could ask ourselves, how much do we really believe the gospel? I, I mean, do we really believe it is the only hope for humankind, the only way to be reconciled to God? So, we are to make the gospel available to people by verbally proclaiming it. You've heard me say, no one will become a Christian without the claims of Christ and the gospel. No one will become a Christian because you're a really nice person, a good person. They must know about Jesus. But we also make it attractive by letting them see the gospel at work in us. I do think some people have forgotten that part. They, they may be sharing the good news, but they do so in offensive ways. Let's go to Sanford Mall on the campus of ASU if you want to hear it shared in offensive ways. Or they don't have a life that backs up the claim that they have been saved from sin, the old is gone, the new has come. If we, are, if we don't have a life worth observing, worth looking at, why would people want it? Now, it is true the gospel itself is offensive. For, exa for example, we've seen Jesus in the gospel are a stumbling stone, a, a rock of offense. You see, it does contain the truth that all are sinners in need of salvation. They have rebelled against a holy God. We have rebelled and are in need of appeasing his wrath rightly poised against them. People don't like that. And the further offensive truth is, is that there's nothing they can do to avert his wrath and absolve their own guilt. But, 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 but now it's time for the good news, because we could not do anything about our deplorable condition. The truth is we're all deplorables. We could do nothing about our deplorable condition. God stepped in and did it for us. Because of his great love, while we were still sinners, God sent his son to die for us. The question, do we really believe that? You say, okay, I, I get that. Our job is not to be offensive as the messengers. Our job is to be attractive, to draw people to the good news of what Jesus has done. I get it. Jesus said things like, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. How then do they glorify our Father in seeing our good works? Many suggest by our good works, we become attractive. People become interested. More, they become intrigued by the gospel and they become followers with us. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. Not that he's doing the saving, but he may by all means, being attractive, he can see some saved. And so it has always been our goal, the Christian goal, to be attractive, to be appealing. In the earliest days of Christianity, even those, listen, even those who opposed, who were opposed um, to, to the faith were forced to admit Christians were different in a good way. Listen to the words of Emperor Julian who adamantly opposed Christianity. In fact, 
This is important. He was, he was convinced the reason the Roman Empire was struggling, in fact crumbling, was because of Christianity. So many were abandoning Roman gods and following Jesus that the gods, the Roman gods, were mad. They needed to return to the gods of the empire. He made that his mission. Interesting. He wrote in a letter expressing his disgust. Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care in the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that not a single Jew, and he means Christian, not a single Christian Jew uh, who is a beggar, and, and that the godless Galileans, again, Christians, not called godless because they didn't worship the Roman gods, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for help that we should render them. Christians are supposed to be attractive for the good of the gospel. But how does this attractiveness, dare I say beauty, what, is it, what does it look like? That brings us to our text today, our continuing study of 1 Peter, two whole verses again today. 1 Peter chapter, calm down, 2, <laughs> verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep or, keep, or better, keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation and slander them they did. From the earliest days uh, of Christianity, followers were accused of awful things, like cannibalism. How? Eating the body and blood of Christ. They, they were accused of eating their own children because of their secret meetings. They were accused of subversion because they did not Worship the emperor. They were accused of sexual immorality because of their love feasts. They were accused of being atheists because they didn't worship the Roman gods. On and on the list goes. I could say it more, but I won't in a mixed audience, especially with children. Peter says, in the midst of all those accusations against you, whatever they may be today, you bigoted people, Keep your behavior excellent. At this point, Peter transitions to the main body of the letter. Six months in introduction. Everything up till now has been introduction, important introduction. Peter is writing to a group of believers, suffering, opposed, persecuted for their faith. He started by reminding them of this great salvation. In the midst of your persecution, remember what you got. He reminded them this salvation comes with responsibilities, and he gave them, remember, five commands. Keep your hearts focused on the return of Christ. Be holy in your conduct. In fact, that conduct should be in holy fear. Love one another deeply and continue to grow in your faith um, through the word of God. 
Then he reminded them who they were. We spent the last couple of weeks on that. You are corporately, remember the corporate nature of all of these words, holy nation, priesthood, uh, a, a, a race, a, a spiritual house. You are corporately together, living stones God is using to build into a spiritual house that we call the church in which God dwells by his spirit. Chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So, so yes, these believers, these readers were suffering, but Peter reminds them of all they have, of all that they are in Christ having reminded them of their relationship with Christ through the gospel, reminded them of their great blessings in the gospel and corresponding responsibilities, having reminded them of their identity together as believers, he now turns to the main purpose of the letter, which stretches from chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 4, verse 11. His purpose, yes, I know that you are struggling. So this is how you are to live in a world of unbelievers. And I want to suggest that there are two extremes that we need to avoid. He's going to tell us it over and over. Don't seek to be so separate that you're not in the world, and yet don't be so close that you're assimilated by the world. I've talked about your corporate identity. I've talked about how you are to love one another. Now let's turn our attention to how you you are to live in a culture of unbelievers who don't love you, who in fact oppose you. Verses 11 and 12 that I just read are an introduction to that theme, which extends to the next two chapters. They are incredibly important. There are basically two commands here, the negative, if you will, followed by the positive, abstain from a sinful life and pursue a beautiful life. And all of that is for the good of others and for the glory of God. Peter starts with beloved, drawing their attention to a new topic. But it's not just an, he's going to do that again in chapter 4, verse 12, by the way. It's not just an introductory title. He means it. Beloved. By whom? Uh, sure, he loved them as brothers and sisters in Christ. After all, he had told them to love one another deeply from the heart. But most agree this is referring to the truth that they are, listen, they are loved by God. Remember to whom he's writing. It may not feel like it. You're struggling you're being persecuted. You're being opposed. Maybe, maybe God doesn't really love you. Maybe God has forgotten you. Perhaps you feel that way. You're, you're, you're struggling, and you, like them, begin to wonder where in the world is God. He loves you. That's where he is. As we just sang, he's in control. He's not forgotten you. You are loved by God. I urge you, common New Testament, a common word in the New Testament used to strongly, strongly encourage people to, have, to leave sinful behaviors or pursue godly behaviors. Paul used this word a lot. I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. You remember that. I call you to a holy life. Interesting, Peter was an apostle. In fact, the first, the chief among the apostles, always listed first. He, he could have demanded more, commanded their obedience. But, but more than that, he loved these people, his brothers and sisters, and so he urged them to, to leave these sinful behaviors. You see, again, it was for their good, for the good of others, and for the glory of God. 
Notice, I urge you as aliens and strangers. He, he used the word alien in the first verse of the book. We talked about it. To be an alien was to be living in a place that is not your own. To be a, a, a sojourner uh, carries with it the same idea. Perhaps there was a slight difference in the words. To be a resident alien is more permanent. To be a sojourner is to be more temporary. But the main point is this. This place, listen, this place, as a, as a custom, as we get to it, as much as we love it, not our home. We are only living here temporarily. We're just here for a little while, just passing through. Abraham used these very words in, in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 23. When, when Sarah died, he was negotiating to buy a piece of, uh, of land that had a cave on it in which he could bury her. He said, I'm, a, I'm just a stranger. He's saying to these people, I'm just a stranger and a sojourner in the land. That's interesting. God had promised him this land. Just lift up your eyes, look to the north, south, east, away. It's all yours, Abraham. And even then, Paul, I mean, Abraham somehow knew it wasn't, this wasn't it. As nice as it is, not it. Something better awaits, something better is coming, which is why Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was received for an inheritance. It's going to be yours. And he, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien. In the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents. There were houses not for him. He's just a sojourner. Maybe we should do that. Maybe that would help us as we spend so much time and money on our houses. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. He was looking for a city which has a foundation whose architect and builder is God. Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life. I mean, she's old. So she considered him faithful with promise. There's born even of one man, and him good as dead, old. Sorry, I don't mean that personal. Many descendants as the stars of heaven and the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, he promised that it's it's coming, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I thought the land of promise, I thought that was it. I thought it the land of Palestine was it. Nope. This is the way we are supposed to live as aliens and strangers, recognizing this place is not our home. What do, you, what do you think the very first command he gave us was to lift our eyes toward heaven and the return of Christ because we are way too attracted to the things of this earth. We are to be longing for the return of Christ. We are to be longing for a country of our own, a city whose architect and builder is God. But for now, we live here as resident aliens. Interesting. Now, I don't mean this to be prejudicial at all, but you can tell when you meet someone, hang around them for a little while, uh, uh, hang, hang out with them, that they're not from around here. You can tell by the way they talk, their accent, their practices, their clothing, their beliefs, their diet. They're from a different culture. We are supposed to be the same. We're not supposed to be like those around us, like this culture. 
people should be able to see as they spend time with us, we're different, not weird. Stop trying to be weird. We're, we're different. We talk differently. We practice differently. We believe differently. As Peter says, abstain from things that are inconsistent with who you are. That are, that are like the culture around you. Don't do that. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You belong to God. Your behavior, your lifestyle should be different. So abstain from fleshly lust, which war against your soul. You said, I thought when I became a Christian, the temptations would go away. Nope. That work for anybody? In case you haven't noticed, they're still around. But you now have a newfound ability to say no. Fleshly lusts do not just refer to sexual sins, although it includes that. It's any sin springing from desires that were part of our old way of life. Now, now please notice, Peter is writing to Christians. He's writing to us. And yet, he says that we are at war against, fighting against our own sinful desires. Yes, we are new creations in Christ, but we are still putting to death the things of this flesh, taking it off like a dirty shirt, if indeed we are. Those sinful desires are still present with us, but again, by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we can, and he's telling us we should say no to sin. Beloved, are you saying no to sin? Peter gives us a representative list of these sinful desires in chapter four. The time already passed is sufficient to, to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. That's the way you used to live, having pr- pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, and all this. You put that, that that's past. And in all of this, they, are, they, the Gentile, unbelievers, are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses that you used to, these excesses of dissipation, and they, and they malign you for it. Again, this, this list are simply examples. We're supposed to abstain from the former desires of the Gentiles, a New Testament word, by the way, for unbelievers. They are part of the old person who died in Christ. And notice, unbelievers are surprised when we don't participate with them in the the same sins. They're supposed to be surprised. Are they? Can can people tell the difference between you and your unbelieving coworkers? When When we do, they malign us, they ridicule us, they oppose us, they speak against us. We're supposed to be different from the world. We should be able to tell by our behavior we don't belong here. We are resident aliens. It'll cost us. We belong somewhere else. Here's the problem. Survey after survey reveal that Christians are just not that much different than the unbelieving world. In fact, many, many pride themselves on fitting in, kind of in disguise. I mean, we look like we belong Our beliefs and practices are hardly different from unbelievers. We even try to look like them, act like them, be like them, be incognito. For many, listen, for many the desire is not to be totally separate from the world and separated to God. The desire is to walk as closely as we can 
to the line. <laughs> Without crossing it, of course. We want to get as close as we can to being like them. Does not cross the line, and many times we fail. Instead of trying to live as closely as we can to Christ. You understand, Jesus didn't fit in. And they killed him. I'm not talking again about being weird. I'm talking about being different. We should be people with different, listen, different passions, purposes, values, and behaviors. The Barna Research Group, it's a Christian group that does research on religious thoughts of the day. They conducted an interesting survey. They wanted to ask people, what do you see as religious extremism? Being extreme, being a fanatic. They, they, they first asked the, the people taking the survey to identify themselves. Are you evangelical? Are you Christian? Are you non-Christian? Are you non-religious? Whatever. Then they gave a list of practices and asked if they thought, if people thought that these were extreme practices. Does this make you a fanatic? Some we would certainly, I suppose, label as extreme. For example, use religion to justify violence. Shouldn't do that. How about refuse standard medical care for children? Some people do that. There's one particular good Jehovah's Witness, I'll say that. They're not Christian, by the way. They're a cult. They, they, they will deny blood transfusions for their children and let their children die. Over 80% of people surveyed saw that as extreme. I think most of us would agree with that. But how about these? Refuse to serve someone because the customer's lifestyle conflicts with their beliefs. Now, I'm not talking about being a you know, server at a restaurant and a couple comes in. You know we're living together, so I'm not going to say that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you won't bake a cake in celebration of a gay marriage. That, that's what they're talking about. Is that extreme? Demonstrate outside an organization they consider immoral. Would, would you demonstrate outside of a Planned Parenthood? That's extreme. Attempt to convert others to their faith. I love that one. Proselytize. That's extreme. Don't you dare do evangelism. Teach their children that sexual relationships between people of the same sex is wrong. Distribute religious material door to door. <laughs> we used to do that. We don't do it so much anymore, but you actually went to people's houses, strangers, total strangers, knock on the door and ask them about their relationship with Jesus. That's extreme. Pray out loud in public for a stranger. Maybe the server, you find out that they've got some challenges. And you say, can I just pray for you? That's, don't, that's fanatical. Protest government policies that conflict with their religion. Over 50% of people surveyed, over 50% saw that as extreme in the U.S. culture. I'm not suggesting which ones are or aren't. I'm suggesting that we are living in a culture increasingly hostile to our faith. Just three more. These range from the 20 to 49% of people survey. Put these in the extreme camp. Quit a good paying job to do mission work in another country. That's extreme. Dick and Millie. Jim and Martha. My goodness, you're doctors and nurses. What is wrong with you? You could have made a bundle of money here. That's extreme. Really. 
fast, that is refrain from food for a period of time, where you put food aside to say, God, that you, you are more important to me than your, than, the, than your gifts. I want you to know the giver is more important than the gifts. Or maybe you, you, you want to focus on your relationship with him or some need that you have. That's extreme. Give up a cheeseburger? Are you kidding me? How about this one? Wait until marriage to have sex. That's extreme. At least 20% of people, up to half, saw those as extreme views. Again, my point is simply this. We are living in a culture where holding biblical positions is considered being a religious fanatic. (laughs) We don't want that, do we? We don't want people to think less of us, to ostracize us, to ridicule us, do we? Listen, I understand the human need for acceptance is almost overwhelming. We're supposed to abstain from sinful thoughts, words, and actions, and doing so will set us apart as not fitting in. But it leads to some positive things. Let's go to the positive command. Actually, verse 12 begins with a participle. It carries with it the idea uh, of strongly urging as well. Keep, actually, it's one sentence, verses 11 and 12. Keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles is a way of saying unbelievers, non-Christians. Instead of pursuing your own sinful inclinations, and and, and instead of pursuing your desire to fit in to culture, keep your behavior excellent, which is going to separate you from culture. And actually, the word excellent there is beautiful. Brings me back to my introduction. Our behavior as believers, while at odds with the culture, should be beautiful, attractive, winsome, to the culture. Keep your behavior beautiful so that in the very thing in which they slander you as evildoers. Look at the word slander. Verse one of this chapter, it's to malign, it's to speak against, ridicule. Includes things like gossip and evil speech to your face maybe or more likely behind your back. I wanna be gentle when I say this. But when unbelievers slander you, they are acting according to their sinful nature. They are still dead in trespasses and sin. They are unregenerate. They are actually the evildoers. They accuse you of doing evil. They're actually the evildoers acting in accord with who they are. We, however, should not act that way. Do you know that through these chapters, he's never ever going to encourage us to stand up for our rights. That's American Christianity. Why do they oppose us? Very simply because darkness never likes light. Sinners don't like it when their sinful actions are exposed by the righteous acts of righteous people. We should not be surprised when sinners act like sinners toward us. This should not surprise us. It should not shock us. It should simply remind us they need Jesus. I remember reading an article once where it was written by a pastor and two pastors decided to take a Saturday off together and to go, two pastors <laughs> Uh, to, to go fishing together in a, in a small lake. And they just, they just got on a Saturday morning and it's about midday and 
and uh, they're having a great time enjoying each other and enjoying God's nature and actually catching some fish and not even lying about it. And, and, and pretty soon, a, a van load of young people show up, right? I mean, not, not 30 yards away from where they're fishing. And they, they break out the coolers and the boom box, and before you know it, the, total, the, 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 the entire day is destroyed. And the pastor writing the article said, I was getting ready to complain when the other pastor looked at them and said, my, how they need Jesus. How do you act when sinners act like sinners? Peter reminds us, because of our good deeds, as they see them, that is, as they observe them, even though they don't like them, they may glorify God in the day of visitation. What does that mean? I'll move very, very quickly as I get ready to close. It reminds us, of course, of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. I quoted earlier, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But, but, but in what way will they glorify God and in what is this day of visitation? There are two possible interpretations and both actually carry some, have some biblical support. One is easy to take, the other one not so much. Let me share them with you, starting with the more difficult one. The word visitation is only used one other time in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 19. Jesus is speaking. He said, the days will come upon you when your enemies will, show, will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground, your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus is talking about the time when the Romans would march against Jerusalem and destroy it, not leaving one stone upon another. A million, it's estimated that a million Jews were killed. Happened in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus marched against the city after the Zealot Rebellion in 66 AD. But here, Jesus says, it would happen as an act of judgment because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. They did not recognize when God came to them in the person of Jesus. They did not recognize Jesus as their Messiah. So the context is that, that of judgment. They're gonna get theirs. The implication is you, you continue to do good deeds, even though it costs you. When, when God comes back, he's gonna visit them in judgment. He will receive glory for your good works, and he will receive glory for their just punishment. You see, even though they saw your good works, they slandered you, they opposed you. Remember to whom Peter is writing, suffering believers, and it was the gospel for which they were suffering. Hang on, he says. When God returns, he will make all things right. While they have opposed you, he will oppose them. He will visit them in judgment. You just hang on. They'll get theirs. I want you to know that that's a biblical principle. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. It's a possible interpretation. It's a bit hard to swallow, but while God does not take pleasure in the punishment of the wicked, he does receive glory. How? Well, it puts his justice and his righteousness and his holiness and, in fact, his wrath on display. But many rightly point out that God is most glorified. In fact, the New Testament is filled with it, most glorified when people believe. You see, the other possibility of interpretation is this, and I think having spent time studying this week, I land here. You keep, listen, my brothers and sisters, my beloved, you keep doing good works. Put the change in your life on display. Yes, you will be opposed. You're gonna be slandered. It's gonna be hard. But some will see your beautiful, attractive lives, and they will believe. Is that worth it? 
You bet it is for all of eternity. So when God either visits them on the day of salvation by his spirit, your good works will be used by God to call people to himself, or when he comes at the very end of time, this visitation, when he visits the world with judgment, they will be spared because of their faith and bring glory to God. God is most glorified in us when we find him to be our greatest treasure. And God can use your good works to draw people to himself. Next chapter, Peter said, and we're going to get to this, and it occurred to me this morning, this may be why I'm delaying two verses at a time, because we're going to get to chapter three, women who were married to unbelieving husbands says this, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, meaning they're unbelievers, they may be one. One to What? One to the gospel of Jesus without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe, same word, your chaste and respectful behavior. I'll talk about that verse when I get to it. You see, our beautiful lives are supposed to be attractive to people, to draw them to Jesus. Don't you want people to know the truth? Are are your personal rights and comforts more important than that? What could be more important than making the gospel attractive and available? It's the mission.